sphincter factor in reverse. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Obsessed 299 is recorded live September 22nd, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is starting to get darker a little earlier than it was the week before. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I am doing fantastic, Darren. It is great to be back. Thank Excellent. you. It's, it's great to have you back. Uh, and I understand that you got a little bit of a dip in today? Um, yeah, I think I had about two and a half hours underwater <laughs> with just a short break to drink some tea and make sure other people were around. Excellent. Well, we, we look forward to hearing about it. And also joining us this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I am excellent, Darren, and how about yourself? And I am doing good. It is some beautiful weather we have. And as I understand it, I, I think this may be one of the few times where nearly everybody in the dive club has gotten a dive in the last seven days. I'm having a hard time thinking of many people who weren't out the full time of the year. Yeah, I think pretty much everyone who, who's an active diver has got wet in one way or another possibly several times. Well, that's great. We always love to have people getting in the water, taking advantage. And if you haven't, uh, you're probably running out of time. And Or if you want to dive all year round, now's the time to start getting in the water because then you can get conditioned to the cold weather time of the year. Also, people in the southern hemisphere, I think you're probably starting your seat right about now. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article up is one out of Hawaii. They're talking about changing the rules for some of the man- manta ray tours. Tour operators would be required to have Manta viewing permits given out exclusively to tour companies that have operated since June of 2015 or earlier. Under a proposed set of new rules released by the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, the department scheduling a meeting for Sunday at Hawaii Community College campus. The meeting will be 10.30 a.m., room B-126. One operator, however, already came out against the new permitting rule, Hawaii, Hawaii Island and Ocean Tours owner and operator Jonathan Droge said changing up the rules on permitting in an already operating business is unfair. It'd be like saying your current driver's license is only good for daytime and weekends, so we want you to drive around night and on the weekends you have to buy another license. Department included its rules a list of 28 operators to be given eligibility to apply for Manta viewing permits, including Drudge's tour business. Operators think they were erroneously excluded from the list should contact a division of boating and ocean recreation before October 14th. The DLNR has been looking for ways to control the increased crowds at the, uh, let's see, and this is a Hawaiian term, so I apologize in advance. Was it Kioa Bay and Makea Bay, also known as Garden Eel Cove? The recent release proposals include several rules that restrict the number of boats tour operators could operate during even any given time. Being on the list of eligible operators, however, does not guarantee issuance of a permit. Companies will be restricted to one permit each and only be granted access to either one or the other bays, according to the proposal. While specifics about how permits will be distributed haven't been nailed down, they said it won't be a lottery. 
They've also nixed the idea of an auction, first come, first serve, and no permit proposals. The state also continues to work on determining an exact fee, if any, for the Manta permit. The draft also proposes proposes rules specific to each of the two popular manta ray viewing sites. Uh, rules will prohibit all manta-related scuba activities. The prohibition wouldn't prevent snorkeling. Wow, if you <laughs> eliminate scuba activities, you've pretty much, it seems like you would have really impacted the boats going out. Well, I think that if they're looking to have it you know, open to the boats, um, it's kind of hard to do that when you have dive flags out there. So, I well, mean, it's... Well, what it is, take- what's going on is uh, it's boats are going out. You know, you're, you're not shore diving to go and do these manta ray dives. These are operators. How it goes now is they have uh, a box of lights. In fact, we just had one of the divers in the mud club just got back from doing this recently. And they set all these lights pointing up. And the lights going up draws in, I don't know if it's krill or some other uh, a fish or um, microorganism, but the manta rays know that because this light and that's where they're collecting, they can get a free meal. So they're swooping in into these uh, feeding areas, and you have divers in the bottom, and they call that, that light center almost like a campfire. And then on the surface, they'll have rafts uh, for the snorkelers and the snorkelers are are diving down uh, if you look at the comments of this article they had somebody who was on she says i agree with limiting the number of boats doing manta ray trips i've been on three with huge increase in numbers of boats and divers i'm a scuba diver and there's way too much human and mantas it's not a natural activity for the mantas and accidents can happen with such a crowd last trip there were 42 mantas and, and countless humans it was hard to find a boat i came off of it would be horrible to have an accident harming a manta or a human. The mantas get so close that they're inches away and a human could get hurt or panic. Mantas are very large and scary to humans. There is no control of knives. It's dangerous for all. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by there's no control of knives. Is, is, have I, Did she see knives? Where, I mean, were people stabbing the man? So I, there should be a way of uh, reasonably, I hate saying regulating because I'm not a big fan of regulating, but you can't have 50 boats in one area all at the same time, a little too much traffic. But this is a huge activity. Uh, also, some of the operators are complaining that it doesn't appear. Uh, they said before the rules are created, the state should consider these impacts. It doesn't seem like an economic impact study has been done. And this is according to the Kona Koa uh, Chamber of Commerce. They're concerned about the impact it would have on the ocean recreation. I've heard a lot of people, I've talked to several people who have done these type of dives. And it's certainly something I would love to try. Kevin, have you ever uh, done a dive like that? No, I haven't. You know, I've been with a lot, a lot of freshwater fish, but um, haven't had the opportunity to uh, dive with saltwater fish yet. Um, I do think the uh, complaint the gentleman's making about changing the rules midstream, though, is not. It's rather unbased, though. I mean, they, they always modify uh, rules for business operating. I mean, you're always going to have a business which is operating before the rules, and the rules come into effect. Uh, so it's what Jonathan Dorge Droge has to say about changing up the rules for uh, already operating businesses being unfair. Well. Uh, businesses are always having to deal with rules changing. So, yeah, it's. It, I mean, I can understand his position that it doesn't really, it doesn't really change anything. I guess is going to say. I think he just likes it. That, I just think, think he likes that he's he's already kind of entrenched in it, and he doesn't well, want to. But there's, know, have it. there. It sounds like there's already a lot who are already entrenched in it. So what has happened mm-hmm. is that this activity has taken off, and it's starting to get increasingly popular. I mean, there's 28 operators who are on the list. So there's two sites. So if you split those operators evenly, that'd be 14 per site. And from my understanding, these manta ray tours is they're all nighttime dives. Well, but this is over how much how much of an area? I mean, uh, 
you're looking at potentially, you know, ballparking 14 boats per bay. Um, you know, are these bays 10 square miles, 20 square miles? Do we have any idea how much? I mean, if, if it's such a large area, it wouldn't be a big deal. Of course, you're going to have hot spots where everyone's going to want to go. Well, what the, there's somewhere, and I'm trying to remember where I read it, but the, they're talking about moorings, uh, that they want to talk about putting more moorings in. So maybe that's what you would do as part of your licensing is you would say, okay, we've got moorings. So operator one, two, and three, you're on mooring A uh, for the for the night. You know, you're allowed you know, two hours each, you know, however you guys do it, that's fine. And then you just spread them out, and that's where you're allowed to dive and so we've we've got some listeners from Hawaii. So if you could drop us a line and see what the local opinions are, we would appreciate it. The, the show at Scuba Obsessed and this next article, nothing like that. I think it's almost bed. Scuba spoke bed, bed some bedtime somewhere. Yeah. So this was an article that was reported. I didn't ha- happen to see it uh, when it first went around, but they say an unfortunate man had knocked over the, a tank and it exploded and he lost a testicle. They say the origin was on the 3rd of September 2016. It was uh, posted on the website. The, they had a photo of a tank that had ruptured, and they showed somebody being uh, brought into an EMT. As the story goes, a 29-year-old Calgary local had suffered extensive injuries to his lower body after an unconventional attempt to fill a scuba tank with weed smoke. It failed spectacularly last Thursday night, according to testimony for several witnesses. Robert Palmer consumed copious amounts of alcohol before making the decision to demonstrate his homemade device. Bob's recreational diver commented on the injured man's friends. For some time, he's been tinkering with an old scuba tank that he bought cheaply from a dive shop. He planned His plan was to use compressed air to feed smoke into the tank and then use the scuba regulator to inhale it. And as entertaining as that sounds, uh, it was actually a hoax. And Snopes.com has verified that is not true. It started in the third, it did another round. But as with all stories, I, I think the more entertaining they are, the more they get shared. Well, it, it sounds like the story started off at a source which it was supposed to just be fictional anyway. Um, unlike the more recent version, is that legit.com where the story originated clearly states that its content is fictional. So it started off as a, as a fictitious story. But it got picked up and shared enough times that people sort of actually believe this. And, of course, everyone that shares it doesn't necessarily say that it's, it's fictitious. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, the, the original writer was writing it just for entertainment purposes only. And really, when you kind of look at the word choices, um, you know, those of us as scuba divers know that, you know, if you can fill a scuba tank up to uh, 3,000 3, PSI, it's pretty unlikely it's going to rupture on falling over. I mean, that's, right. that's just not, that, that, that's not part of the deal, you know? And I don't know, uh, just the word choices give me the, the impression that this is all kind of, you know, written just, just to get your, to get your attention. You know, um, you know, I'm sure we've all seen those, um, oh, we get those things shared on Facebook where, yeah, right. uh, you, it looks like a very interesting article and you open it up. And you find out that it's just a couple of paragraphs with pages and pages of ads. This, you know, this could very well have been one of those. So, now, Jim, if if somebody had done this, that would kind of violate the O2 cleaning. Most definitely. The question is, how would they even have started to get the smoke in there before they put all the air in on top? <clears throat> well, maybe if they were, I don't know, exhaling it into the uh, the, blend. the intake, the intake, yeah. or the... unless they ran it through the compressor. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, smoke has actually got you know, has, has solids in it, so 
I can't imagine and, that uh, the compressor going to 4,000 PSI is going to handle that, going to like that very much. Yeah, and then you've got filters afterwards that's going to take all that stuff out of it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think you're, yeah, you're right. actually going to be a little disappointed <laughs> if that was your, your hope, even if you had attempted it. It seemed like those filters would scrub most of it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's like saying Donald Trump apologized or Hillary told the truth. <laughs> we are in that season, aren't we? Yeah. Those of us who know about diving, you know, that this is definitely not no, written to uh, hoodwink a diver. It's written to get the attention of the public. You know, so we can sit here and pick all kinds of kinds of holes in the story. Um but you know, it, I'm sure that it served its purpose. You know, it was uh, written to get attention. It got attention. So, you know, probably a lot more attention than the, than the original writer thought it was going to get. <laughs> yeah. It was taken, taken seriously all over the internet. I, I saw this, you know, several weeks ago and kind of chuckled at it. You know, I mean, it's the, the, the caption really get get your you know get your eye. But you know, you look, you start reading it, and within the first paragraph, it's pretty clear that it's really not uh, very practical. This happened here like this, so. Yeah, it's, it's clearly OSHA violations. Yeah, the, the combination of of, uh, of the marijuana smoke, the tank exploding, and losing a testicle—just that it's hard to not look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you're, you're appealing to a, a number of different crowds there to, to get their attention. <laughs> yeah, this, this is one of those things to get your attention. Click on it, open it up, and scroll through two pages of ads to get four paragraphs of information. So, yeah. well, if you happen to be. In California, one of the, uh, somebody had asked a question in an article that said, spearfishing with scuba before free diving for abalone. The question was, if I'm out spearfishing with scuba gear, can I leave the gear in a boat and also free dive for abalone? And the answer was, sport divers are prohibited from using scuba or other surface-supplied air equipment to take abalone, and they cannot possess abalone on board any boat, vessel, or floating device in water containing scuba or surface-supplied air. They said, well, on dry land, it's okay if they have the uh, abalone and the scuba gear together. It just it can't be on boats, kayaks, floating tubes, other devices to where the equipment can spearfish or harvest it. And that, that's something to be aware of. I, you know, it seems like that'd be an easy mistake for somebody to make. Yeah, I don't know much about this one here. It's, uh, it's, I'm sure it's, just, it's, it's an issue of are they able to police it. Well, that's that's always a challenge with any of these. Are they able to police it? And that's why they've got the rule the way is because you could – on, you know, have the an innocent of intent and not technically be breaking the rule, but how would law enforcement be able to determine it? They'd have to catch you at that moment you came up and prove it. So this gives them an avenue that if you've got both together, the the assumption is that you you did do it, and you're going to face the penalty. Uh-huh. Then, yep. If you have the equipment present and the, and the seat, and you have the, uh, the the game present, you know that's that's how you did it. So that's why you. Don't carry a loaded gun in the woods during hunting season unless you're hunting. Yes. Uh, West Marine will offer relaunch scuba gear brand. West Marine says it will now offer a new Decor Pacer Pro scuba gear. The retailer said Decor is one of the first scuba brands is being relaunched after nearly 10-year hiatus and introduced to a new generation of divers exclusively through West Marine and Pacer Pro debut. Uh, the Dacre Pacer Pro is sold online at westmarine.com and in two of the retailer's Florida Dive Center locations, North Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale. The coming months, the unit will be available in more of West Marine's 258 retail locations. We're confident the Dacre Pacer Pro will appeal to a whole new generation of divers as well as excite those divers that have enjoyed the sport for the years and the brand. So I'm kind of surprised at this. Uh, is this a, a case where they just bought the uh, a defunct brand over and up and that they're using an offshore uh, regulator and rebranding it? 
I don't know. I hadn't heard anything about that. I mean, Decor was a, a long-term brand that you mm-hmm. know, was well-known and well-respected. So Now, does this mean that you'll be able to get parts again for Decor, or are they going to start? You know, I, know, I know that quite a few uh, you know, good regulators are now just obsolete from Decor because you just can't get parts to rebuild them anymore. Yeah, I doubt they'll go back into old production. It sounds like they're just purchased the brand and are going to start marketing something new under the brand. The question is, who's going to be their primary producer? Who's, who's you know, are they just going to relabel somebody else's uh, regulator with a different logo? Now, I understand that West Marine used to carry scuba gear, but then they stopped doing it. So I, I wonder, I don't. it must not have been decor that they had before. I don't know. I don't remember them ever being in the scuba. Yeah, I, I don't think the store that we used to have here in St. Joe ever carried scuba. I think it was after they left. It seemed like since we've been doing the show, we covered them getting in and going out. So whatever had happened. And then here, this one's uh, interesting. This week it was pirates and divers staged an underwater sword fight in an aquarium in Auburn Hills. Two divers in black and white stripes and pirate hats took a swim in the ocean tank. Sea Life Michigan Aquarium for underwater battle. Floating among sharks, stingrays, and other various ocean creatures, two pirates in scuba gear engage in a a swords fight in front of a crowd of onlookers at Great Lakes Crossing Outlets in Auburn Hills. It's one of the main events of the aquarium's Pirate Week. Week? Reek? Running from September 18th through the 24th. I noticed, uh, was it yesterday or one one day this week was Talk Like a Pirate Day? You know, I miss that. That's when when you work by yourself in an office with almost nobody. I guess I could talk to myself like a pirate. <laughs> mm, That's just plain do, sad. Well, well, well do you? <laughs> I'm well, wondering now. You. Hi, matey. That was some pretty good buoyancy control to stage those, stor- those sword fights I'm seeing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the OSHA requirement diver in a tank. Hmm. Well, fortunately, they have a pretty solid bottom there, so they're not going to muck it up while they're doing all this here, but. Just, just, just a good publicity stunt here. Yeah, yeah. They, they got us to talk oh, about quite it. Quite entertaining. So. Quite entertaining, you know. I mean, don't know that I'd pay to see it, but I'd, I'd like to see it. You know. Yeah, heck, I'd like to and do it. Get, get me in a tank. I do. You a don't need to fight. pay. To. Yeah. Yeah. And then in uh, Dana Point, assuming where is Dana Point? Dana Point. My browser just locked up again. Thank you. Dana Point, uh, California. I'm seeing lots of Dana Point, California here. That's what I'm I'm guessing. It feels like California. Yeah. Uh, most of my results are all coming back from Dana Point, California here. It said, on Saturday, 89 volunteer scuba divers descended 15 feet into the water and felt along the bottom for debris and trash as part of the 15th annual Dana Point Harbor underwater cleanup. Uh, the dive netted more than 6,000 pounds of trash and was a final dive in a seven-year semi-annual event to improve water quality in the 40-year-old harbor. Ocean debris degrades habitats, endangers marine and coastal wildlife, causes navigation hazards, and threatens human health and safety, said Kelly uh, Rinderknecht from Dana West Marina, who was the OC Parks and County of Orange, has organized the cleanups. The stuff that's been accumulated over 40 years, if we did it again, we'd definitely have a lighter load. I still think there's stuff down there. I'd guess we didn't get 100% of it. Uh, she said divers have pulled up 6,500 pounds since the project began in 2009. Divers have been Dives have been held twice a year. Each year with divers coming across Orange County and neighboring Riverside and Los Angeles counties. While divers in the water, 52 volunteers collected nearly 1,000 cigarette butts and more than 3,000 pounds of trash from the marina and park areas throughout the harbor. 
Saturday's event coincided with a coastal cleanup day, the state's largest volunteer coastal cleanup event. Unusual items in- recovered included two small boats, a new flat-screen television, American flag complete with flagpole, a bald eagle pole topper, or marine toilet, anchors, chains, batteries, two fire extinguishers, umbrella and chairs. There's also lots of cans, bottles, cell phones, sunglasses, several rolling carts. Divers were awarded prizes in categories such as most humorous find, whale of a find, fishiest find, most useful find, and most unique find. Aqualund donated two scuba regulators valued at $650 each, awarded them the two volunteers who recovered the boats as grand prize and runners-up. It was so much fun, I feel like we really accomplished something over the years. It builds diver confidence by diving blind. It helps with orientation. You take going up and down for granted in the ocean where you can see, but in these murky conditions you can tell you can't tell if you're going up or down. It's unnerving for a person to lose one of their senses. So 6,000 pounds of trash in one day. I'm That's... thinking we can beat that. <laughs> we got, sounds like we got a goal. Yeah, so we, our goal is to beat 6,000 pounds? Yeah, well, we, we have that uh, ecology day. Was Isn't that October 1st, Jim? Yes. Okay. Uh, 6,000 pounds of trash. I know we've seen quite a quite a bit of junk down there. Uh, you think we got 6,000 pounds of trash you can pull out of there, Jim? Three tons. Well, there's a lot of heavy stuff. If we brought the lumber up, yeah. But uh, I, I just don't think we have enough people. No, we don't have enough people to bring that much up. No, yeah. I'll be happy if we just fill a, a one or two cubic yard dumpster. Okay. Yeah. I, I I think uh, we'll probably be in the thousand pounds range. I I don't think that would be too tough. And as Mac and I were discussing, is it it depends on the shore support. You know, we get a lot of divers, but if we're a little light on shore support, it's hard to bring up some of the stuff because there's tires. It doesn't take too many tires. I mean, I know where there's probably seven or eight tires within 100 yards. Yeah, a lot of them on the right there by just just beyond the uh, the concrete pipe where we launch. Yep. And, and depending upon the current, those tires can be a real bear. I mean, uh, might be an issue to, you know, have with the shore support to have, have some lines that can pull them in with. Yeah, well, that, that's lines, or uh, if you had some sort of uh, tarp where you could throw the tarp in the water, then loop the lines and have you know, almost like have it pull out like a drop net. You know, the, the more shore support, it'd be nice to have two shore support per diver. Well, last I saw, it looked like we had maybe eight eight divers coming on that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, it looked like we were going to have pretty good turnout just with the the mud club. And heck, I've we've I'm surprised how many people we got diving the river regularly. As we'll talk about later, I. I was able to uh, sneak down there on Sunday, and there was five or six people uh, in the water when I got there. Yeah, they've had quite a good turnout for those regularly. Of course, but, but look how the river's been been donating. I mean, the river's been really generous this year. Yeah, and and for everything we bring up, there's there's more down. I, I've noticed that all the divers are starting to get picky. So they're, you know, for everything that somebody brings up, because they think it might be interesting or collectible, you know, another dozen or so items right next to it are left. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. going to be very interesting on Saturday or on the first when we start pulling all this, all these bottles out. You know, how many of those uh, bottles will end up going home with someone, which is <laughs> fine with me. Yeah, uh, and how many will end up going in the dumpster? I know I was, I spent a lot of my dive tonight just stacking bottles in piles to make it easier to get in there and clean them up, and pick them up, and get them out of there because uh, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're they're just. Not what we would consider keepers, but then again, in 20, 30, 40 years, somebody might want them. So it's it's kind of a mix. I got mixed feelings about this cleanup and yeah. taking the bottles out of there, the good bottles, when 
you know, maybe we ought to just go for broken bottles and junk <laughs> and stuff that we know nobody will want to collect in 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I can certainly understand wanting to keep some down there. Uh, and I and I think if we overlook a couple, that wouldn't necessarily be too bad. It, it seems like they keep, I would have thought we'd have, with the number of dives we've gotten in, that they'd be getting less. And it seems like the opposite's been happening. We're, we're dredging up more old bottles now than we ever have before. Yeah, that's for sure. I have to say the last three or four times I've been in the river, I think I've got a milk each time. You know, it seemed like I would go only get one a year. So that's coming up. If you're in the, the southwest part of Michigan in the beginning of October, it'd be worth coming in. Is it beginning of October? October the 1st. October the 1st. Wow, we're we're getting real close then. So that's a week from this Saturday. And what, and what, what time are we meeting? Uh, it's 11 till 3 is what we've posted, so... I will suggest people get there early, like, you know, nine, ten o'clock, because there's a lot of activity in Niles that day, and I think this park's going to be a, parking's going to be a real premium down there. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, maybe a couple yeah, hours early. Yeah. And we're actually meeting, we're actually meeting at the park, not the boat launch. We're meeting at the park, which is behind the theater, correct? Right. That's where the activity will be. I mean, I'm sure people will be launching their boats from the boat launch and bringing them up. Mm-hmm. And I reminded the sheriff's department today that they uh, have been asked and said they probably should be able to. They didn't promise, but indicated they would be providing a boat to close the river for us. Yeah, because I, I can imagine some people getting a little perturbed if they can't do their fishing. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what's what's in the season right now, but I know that you know, that's a pretty pretty hot fishing stretch, too, so... Yeah. Um, well, they can have the area below the the uh, railroad bridge. Yeah. Yeah, there's... I I don't know how many head north, because it seems like if you're going to go north of that area, you, you go in upstream, and if you're going to go south, you go in downstream, so it doesn't seem like that's a big boating area, but we did see quite a few boats this weekend. They're actually... Uh, so it was a little too warm yet for the type of fish they were looking for. And then here we have uh, another one of those vessels up in Canada. I think it was one of those. The Northwest Passage has been discovered. The HMS Terror. Still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm just looking okay. for uh, where to where to find a good spot. Well, uh, I don't know. It's a it's a good sized article, but yeah. Well, a lot of these articles they all start off with like, you know somebody thinks that they're these are all frustrated novelists. Who are forced to work and in, in writing newspaper articles, so you have to get beginning. Uh, so this is fairly a good ways up there uh, near King Williams Island is where they they found the vessel that they're thinking is the HMS Terror. Let me let me do the other article. There's two articles on this. This first one uh, doesn't have much meat to it. And if you are in the, ch- we try to paste copies in the show notes. If you are a donator, the show or the program. Through Patreon, three dollar or a month will show notes in advance, and I've actually remembered to send it out every time. Oh yeah, that, that King Williams Island is pretty isolated. Yeah, it's it's not your normal area you hanging around. But the British explorer Captain Sir John Franklin and crew embarked on a journey to navigate the fabled Northwest Passage. The expedition never made it back. A second ship that doom of that doomed voyage may have been found in the appropriately named Terror Bay. The Guardian reports, queued by Inuit word-of-mouth archaeologists with the Arctic Research Foundation on September 3rd, found what he thinks is the HMS Terror. The ship sits in about 80 feet of water, is nearly intact, according to the Guardian. The vessel looks like it was buttoned down tight for winter. It sank. Everything was shut. Even the windows are still intact. If you could lift this boat out of the water or pump it out, it would probably float. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it sank for the Franklin. Well, I mean, if it- 
if it sat there and the ice froze around it, I mean, it probably got clamshelled. I mean, it's... Yeah, the uh, Franklin launched the expedition in 1845, commanding two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. He and his men were attempting to navigate the sea route that connects Atlantic Pacific Ocean through the Arctic Ocean and was long sought by a trade route by several explorers in September 1846. During the attempts, the two ships became stuck in the ice. A note found on King William's Island in 1859 revealed the ships were deserted in April 1848 and that Franklin himself died on June 11, 1847. Eight other officers and 15 men also died at the time of that writing in April 25, 1848, meaning that 106 men were left to face their fate. None would ever be heard from again. Since 2008, Parks Canada-led mission has been searching for the Franklin ships. In 2014, researchers discovered the wreck of the HMS Erebus and Victoria Strait divers discovered artifacts aboard the ship, including a bronze bell, a 680-pound cannon, patent medicine bottles, and uniform buttons. Uh, Lucky Tip, a remotely operated vehicle, entered the possible HMS terror wreck on September 11th and spotted plates in a can on the shelf of a food pantry, as well as wine bottles and desks with open drawers. The wreck was found 60 miles south where archaeologists expected to find it. They are tipped off by an Inuit crew member, Sammy Kogvik, 49, of Gojo Haven, who had seen hunks of wood in the sea while fishing on the trip years below. Kogvik took pictures of the wood but lost his phone later that day, he told the Guardian. He didn't tell anyone the story until joining the crew of the research vessel Martin Bergman, which was searching for the wreck because of his tip. The vessel detoured to head towards the spot where terror was resting. The next step, according to Parks Canada spokesperson uh, Megan Bradley's confirmed the wreck is the HMS Terror. The discovery of the HMS Terror would be important for Intuit communities in Canada, reflecting the ongoing and valuable role of Intuit knowledge in the search and making significant contributions to completing the Franklin story. Bradley wrote in a statement to Life Science. Canadian government officials likewise heralded the discovery and the tip from the Inuit community that led to it. A multi-year contribution from contribution from Parks Canada and its partners in the Arctic has led to the discovery of the two most famous and mysterious ships in Canadian history. HMS Erebus was found in a unique combination of Intuit traditional knowledge, cutting-edge science, and Intuit knowledge was again cultural to this amazing discovery. The latest discovery will offer a unique and incredible opportunity for archaeologists and exploration and the sharing of Inuit history and culture. So it's probably worth looking at that video. Uh, yeah, I just didn't want to have the sound bowls away. <laughs> you know, these usually pop up. You're talking about the video at the top or the one that's a little further down? There's one, and I'm going to play it. So if I break up, I've got it muted. So it shouldn't be playing, but, of course, it's buffering. Oh, and I get the an ad for the Maytag Repairman, a local company. Okay, that's good for you. I, I, I got an ad for Mega Red on mine. Mega Red. Yeah. Huh. The thing about fish oil. Fish oil? Yeah. It must know I don't really... They must not have me as uh, marked as a healthy person. Oh no, it's it's about Arctic. Arctic fish are usually pretty pretty high in uh, the omega threes and all that. So. Ah, okay. Okay, I'm I'm buffering. Okay, now it's now the video's playing. Are you looking at the one from the Arctic Region Foundation or the other yeah, one? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at that one, and that's not too bad a video. It looks like something that we, sing we could a, have. Sing, in... a bell, sing a bell for the most part here. Quite a bit of a bell. It looks like there's a lot of uh, growth on it. I'm seeing like a lot of plant growth on it here well it sounds like the the intuit uh person who discovered it uh saw it from the surface Ooh, there's some uh, dead eyes it's a little bit of growth not a lot got some big fish in it i'm looking for the video where they go inside here they here they are getting ready to go in yeah i was seeing a bit of a claw there i wonder if this is like part of an rov of some sort we're looking at yeah if this is a great lakes i would say they had a burbot oh that's it that's all they're going to show me 
Hmm, mine's still running. I've got a two-minute clip. Actually, I've got a two-minute clip I'm looking at here. Showing lots of wood. Um, some, some looks. Uh, look, thing is, you know, they're so close to the subject, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what you're looking at because you just don't have the perspective to tell. But, you know, uh, clearly it's, it has a lot of foliage growing on it. I'm seeing a lot of large, leafy um uh, you know, plants growing on it. Yeah, it, it probably is quite shallow. Well, did you say? Did you say this was 80 feet or 11 meters? Which one was this one? Oh, the wheels there. Wheels very intact. That's cool. Well, they they talked about where they could uh, desk with drawers open. Got a very nice double wheel on it. See the Erebus. Uh, if I'm saying it wasn't resting at 11 meters. They said one was 11 meters. One was like 85 feet, something like that. Yeah, the other one is 24 meters. Would put that. Would yeah, about 80 feet. Wow, either of those. That's a, that's a nice diving range. Now you want to talk? Oh, here we go. Now, now, yeah, I think I think it's a dry suit dive, though. Yeah, it could be. I, I mean, I, I've been dry suit diving anyway. I'd be up for that. that must be a smokestack stovepipe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm on the other one. They must have. They must. First one must have been a T. Well, there's two videos. There's a second video further down, which looks to be a little bit more less diving and more, um, you know, more educational. Oh wow! We get, hey, we have a ad about bedwetting here. Just what we need to know. Oh wow! This is this is. I would do this dive easily. They want to create some tourism up there because this is a this is a, a wreck that you heard about in. Yeah, but Canada's not quite so open about diving you know, the historical ships as as America is. Uh, I would be surprised if Canada doesn't put this one off limits very very quickly. You know, they have that. Uh, you know, they look at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Protection Act as meaning hands off. You know, they have a several of them which they've you know declared undi- undiveable so i'm sure i would be surprised if this one is not put on that list before it's released to public orders although i don't know i mean we're getting some pretty good details about where it is here so well you say, they, they also it, what, realize this is not you know it's not like uh we're off toronto where where somebody from the u.s can go across the border uh you know rent a boat and go and find it Rent a boat. I'm thinking road trip, man. Road trip. Well, this one. So let's hey, see. Jim, Jim you, you 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 still got the Tobel Hummingbird, right? Oh yeah. Oh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, we're, we're kind of busy Sunday, but you know, maybe the following weekend. You know, let's be kind of a cool road trip. Hey, I'm I'm joking, listeners. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. But this this could be done though. We we could do this. Well, I, have uh, you seen that show Ice Road Truckers? Yes. Well, one of the locations in i don't know if it's a current series but previous series was Yellowknife, and in one of the zoomed up maps of it this is way north of Yellowknife. okay well so, yeah but what what time of year is that is that that filmed i mean what, what's this what's this place look, look like you know in september in, in august i well, mean that, uh, those videos are from right now okay because they just were in so this is the what what they're doing is this is probably the peak of the season this is probably the you know the warmest where the water is and from here on out uh, you probably got two or three weeks before they could have ice on it mm-hmm. i don't know but you know it's clearly it's warm enough to get quite a bit of growth in the water so it must be at least temperate during the summertime but, i mean this is doable you know yeah. um, not that we're going to but uh, you know honestly uh tell you what I'm, I'm quite confident that canada will close up diving quite quickly quite quickly so if anybody wants to do this, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I can I can load the camper up. They can hook the boat up, and uh, yeah, I mean it would be it would certainly be a blast. It's a it's it's more than a day trip. Oh know? yeah, yeah. And, let's, uh, let's, let's I think this is this calls for. 
And you just about to figure it's just going to be a two tank dive because we're probably not going to get any good tank fills up there, guys. So <laughs> we're going to have. Yeah. Well, that's where that that uh, that gas uh, compressor that Wolf has. Well, they have one of those down there. I don't know. Mine's been pretty unreliable. So, uh, Jim, you still there? Yeah, we've got one uh, came in on consignment that we're going to try to help them out with. What is it? Is that Scott's? Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at this. That's a pretty nice unit. According to Google, to go from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Yellowknife in Canada, and that's still south of where this is located, it's uh, 2,671 miles, so it's only 41 hours. All right. Well, the big question is, are there roads there? That's the big question. I mean, uh, you know, and then, you know, it's pretty unlikely we're going to find a boat launch anywhere <laughs> nearby this year. So uh, the logistics of it, well, um, we don't have a boat launch. Looks like I'm seeing a lot of pictures here. When you, when you Google images for uh, King Williams Island, it's 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 very rocky up there. Um, you know, wait out and make sure you don't drop the trailer over a, over over a shelf. But you can probably launch a boat on the shore. Um, just the big thing is, are, are we going to have be able to drive within 50 miles of it? Because um, I figure my boat's got a range of about 100 miles. So yeah, I'm I'm looking. It looks like it's almost straight north of us. Okay. We can't get the right to King William I Yeah, this is this is more of a this is a plane dive. <laughs> plane dive, huh? All yeah. right. Well, let's see what Max's doing. Yeah, there you go. We we hey, we've got connections all over here, okay? I mean, uh of course getting is there a place to land? <laughs> I mean, are, are, are we are we bailing out of a are we bailing out and hiking back? So we're going to end up like Ernest Shackleton's guys up there. So, of course, Ernest Shackleton got all of his guys back. So, yeah, I, I'm uh, T A L O Y O A K. That's not too far away. No, ever, ever. Anytime I get try and get close to it, Google says, "I ah, there's no way." I, so I, I don't think there's. Uh, what's the next one we've got up on the? Over the news. Ah, this is the wreck that you want to talk about. The Antithakira shipwreck. Out of Greece, they had a new discovery. We're, we're in the fall season of diving and for artifacts. Uh, Nature.com has reported that human skeletons were found on the shipwreck. 2,000-year-old bones could yield the first DNA from an ancient shipwreck victim. Look at the Isn't that beautiful, diving conditions? Yeah, I keep on having a hard time opening this up. It keeps on um, trying to send me to an ad. So I'm a little behind you here. Here we go. I think I got it clean this time. It's like... But, you got to be careful where, where, where you mouse on these pages. Yeah, but look at the visibility here. I mean, have, have you got a link to this in the uh, chat room yet? I mean, that's just the kind of viz that we can drool over here. Yeah, there we go. We we don't see that in the Great Lakes too often. Maybe Lake Superior, not this year. Uh, researchers on, are on the tiny island, uh, Greek island of Antithakira, a ten-minute boat ride from the wreckage of a two-thousand-year-old merchant ship they discovered by sponge divers in 1900. Direct was first ever investigated by archaeologists. The most famous bounty to date has been the clockwork device that models the motions of the sun, moon, and planets, dubbed the Antithakira mechanism. August of this year, investigators made another groundbreaking discovery. A human skeleton buried under a half a meter pottery shards in sand. We were thrilled, says Brandon Foley, an underwater archaeologist with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Massachusetts, and co-director of the excavation team. We don't know anything else like it. Within days of the find, Foley invited uh, Schroeder, an expert in 
ancient DNA analysis from the Natural History Museum in Denmark and Copenhagen to assess whether genetic material might be extracted from the bones on his way to Antithikira. Schroeder was doubtful, but he removed the bones from their bags and was pleasantly surprised. The material's a little chalky, but overall looks well-preserved. It doesn't look like bones 2,000 years old. Then, sifting through several large pieces, Scully finds a Pretorius bone, dozen nuggets behind the ear that preserves DNA better than any part of the skeleton or teeth. It's amazing you guys found that. If there's DNA from what we know, it'll be there. Uh, Schroeder agrees to go ahead with DNA extraction. The permission is granted by the Greek authorities. It would take about a week to find out whether the sample contains any DNA. He says perhaps a couple of months to sequence and analyze the result. For Schroeder, discovery gives him a chance to push the boundaries of ancient DNA studies. So far, most have been concluded on samples from cold climates such as northern Europe. I've been trying to push the application of ancient DNA in environments where people don't usually look for DNA. He was part of a team last year that published the first Mediterranean ancient genome of Neolithic individuals from Spain. Yeah, this is a story that just keeps on coming back, keeps on coming back. I mean, um, you know, the Antikythera shipwreck has been explored since it was first discovered in 1900. Uh, you know, the story on it was that, uh, you know, you saw the, the sponge divers and they would, guys would go over, um, you know, not like, not quite free diving, but they'd have a surface, a surface air supply and, uh, you know, kind of a very basic hard hat kind of style dive actually. Mm-hmm. And the first guy down was frantic, pull me up, pull me up, pull me up. And they, they pulled him up and he swears the bottom was all covered in, in bodies and dead horses. And refused to go back down. So the captain of the team went down. And now we're talking a depth here. I want to say, isn't this? Oh, oh, it's like 80 meters something. It's quite. It's you know, it's it's well beyond sport depth. You know, it's, it's at a depth you're going to have significant nitrogen narcosis down there. Yeah. Um, you're going to be you're possibly possibly hallucinating, and you know, really, you know, can't trust what you're seeing down there at that point. So the captain goes down there, and, and he sees the same thing, but he grabs something and brings it up with them and he's got like the arm of a statue when he comes up so they realize okay yeah there's there's body parts but it's from bronze statues oh. <laughs> and yeah yeah and so they they bring this they bring this stuff back and there's this huge interest in in this uh you know what they see as being a big debris field over there they don't know know that it's truly a shipwreck but they know there's a lot of stuff a lot of really cool things on the bottom and you know, a large team goes out there, and they they brought up everything which they was visible on the surface. You know, um, you know, they brought up lots of statues, lots of pottery. Um, now, the Antikythera device you mentioned there, mm-hmm. uh, that is one of those great enigmas. Um, it's one of those really hard to explain devices here, because we're looking at a site which is been shown to be right around 2,000 years old, okay? And yet they pull up a machine with bronze gears, and the machine's incomplete. You know, based, you know if you look up the Antikythera device, you'll see that it's, um, you know, kind of a, you know, it, 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 it's a group of gears kind of in a box that, uh, you know, there's some pieces missing to it. Um, you'll see where some... People have uh, theorized what other gears would have, would have fit into place with it there. But you have a, a device here completely handmade out of bronze. Uh, and incidentally, gears were, it's believed that gears were, were invented during the Renaissance era, you know, in like, like 15th century, uh, much, much later than this. It's not believed that they were actually capable of making gears at this time. 
So, you know, this is the, your, your story of, you know, finding a 747 socked away in, in a pyramid someplace, okay? This device does not fit in the time frame. And there's been a lot of uh, speculation as to, you know, who could have made this because, as far as they knew, their technology just wasn't there 2,000 years ago to make this kind of item here. But by, by counting the teeth and seeing how the stuff works together, they realize it's most likely what you call an astrolab, which is a device that um, it would have had a crank on it and you in symbols, and it would have basically shown the different position, the positions of different planets in relationship to the Earth and the Moon, and it would have been you know something for forecasting um, eclipses, lunar and solar, um, but a very intricate, uh, detailed device, and you know just amazing that someone could make this 2,000 years ago, and. And that that's but you no, know, I would encourage anyone who listens to this to look up the Antikythera device. It's one of those kind of things that scratch your head and say, Huh? <laughs> I mean, how'd that yeah. get there? Yeah, I'm I'm just fascinated by it. And it just goes into my theory that I've I've said many times in the show is that we like to think that our ancient ancestors were morons and I I think if you were to be able to bring somebody uh forward in time or we were able to go back in time, you would see we're probably more similar than we'd like to admit well, from, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 4,000. You know, we, yeah. we have the benefit of uh, a lot of learning and education uh, from libraries, but uh, there was certainly, it didn't mean that humans weren't capable of inventing and uh, developing on their own way back. Well, well, one of the ideas is this about this device is they say it possibly could have been built by Archimedes himself. Um, Archimedes was approximately this time frame, and... Mm-hmm. You know, he was an inventor. Uh, one of his inventions is even used today, the Archimedes screw. It's uh, used in, um, you know, in, in grain elevators. You know, basically, you're able to, you, know, you spin what looks like a big auger in a, inside of a cylinder, and you're able to actually push uh, you know, grain or sand or something uphill with it, yep. um, devices which is, which is used today. And uh, you know, you know, it's be- believed that he would have had the know-how. He possibly could have made this although it's not something which would have been you know widespread or, or mass produced or anything like that so yeah. um but, but it, yeah, it, this sort of- you know, it comes down to it's a really early form of a computer and once you get by the concepts of you know if you've got a material that can produce uh consistently those gears to where you can make the gears of the teeth the same size and, and ratios you can do a lot with it it's just a, it's a matter of a thought process you just have to be in a time in history where you've got access to those materials you have the knowledge of something outside of the mechanism that you're trying to represent into a device so uh, we're astrology was probably pretty well known where they knew how many days it would be from you know the solstice in the spring the solstice in the fall and you had markers which were already tracking the positions of of stars and different alignments then it was just a matter of the math and applying it into uh, gears and ratios so if there was if you had people with that type of knowledge and you were able to give them time uh, meaning they didn't have to go out and kill something to eat and grow food to live then uh, it's possible to make those type of advancements. Well, yeah, and actually, there's a. You know, I'm kind of dipping off the engine to off the edge to a little bit of pseudoscience here, but uh, there is a a copy of a book from the Library of Alexandria that which exists in a uh, a Spanish library today. That uh, the book about devices, and yeah, you're exactly right on track with that being basically a, a computer. Um, you know, you're not too. You know, this is only 
one step away from a punch card style computer mechanism yeah. now. And the um, the uh, the Greeks were actually able to make uh, a computer using um, oh what was it they had like a a board with pegs and a cord wrapped around it and they were able to use that to uh, you know make uh, puppets and different things move and dance in unison. Um, the, the Greeks had a, a, a lot of puppet theater going on, yeah. and it's, it's surprising they only used it just for for puppets and didn't not take it any further. But the uh, Greeks actually, you know, we know they, they were philosophers and, and they dabbled a lot of science. I mean, the Greeks actually even got so far as to playing with an early steam engine. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's wild. What what, yeah. what you know? We, yeah, you're right, Darren. We we like to look, think of our ancestors being these kind of backward, uh, superstitious folk, but no, if, if they had the time to think about it and put it down and work on it, you know, that they figured things out just like we would, if not better. Uh, you know, it's really just a, a tragedy of what was lost with the with the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Yes. Uh, there's just, I mean, lost civilizations, and you, you, your mind would run wild on this, you know. you got to be careful you start reading on the, the Library of Alexandria because, there's, there, again, there's a lot of, um, you know, pseudoscience around this of what was there and all that but because you get a lot of sites that talk about there being all kinds of lost cultures and ufos and other stuff along <laughs> those roads but uh it's astounding what was very likely lost with the burning of the of alexandria so oh, yeah I, I i agree i mean there's certain things that because you had i mean I'm, I'm thinking even more modern now where we had monks but there was there had to be equivalent society of people who just their desire was to document, organize, learn. If each generation only had a couple people who were capable of doing that over enough time, you would you would have some very unique. Well, you know, I'd encourage any of our listeners to look up, you know, the Antikythera device, the Antikythera shipwreck. You know, this is a story which just um, it shows up like every you know thirty, forty years, someone goes out there and does a new a new exploration on it. I know that uh, when the initial survey was done on it and they removed everything out of the ground that they everything visible they thought they had everything out of there but then uh jacques Cousteau went out there back in let's say 1977 i want to say give or take a year he's back to 1977 and he uh you know he decided to excavate and find out what, what was beneath the surface and oh did he find stuff and basically what we're seeing here with with nature.com they are you know continuing that uh you know, they're digging again below the surface. And Cousteau, you know, he was using the grid system. He's using a lot of stuff very comparable to modern archaeology techniques and documenting exactly where everything was found and photographing and mosaics. And, I mean, uh, he was, that guy was so far ahead of his time. It's scary, I mean, what that guy was doing. So, uh, but, you know, Cousteau had a lot, of, a lot of information on it, and now we're seeing nature in it there. But it's just something which shows up every, every so often. And... You know, there's another article out. There. I don't know if this article went too far into it, but actually, I, won't, I know there are. There's been more than one skeleton found on this. Um, I think it might have been the article from uh, NBC because there are several articles on this. And because this this one from Nature is is like the, the original release on it, but there have been some updates which have come out since this since this original release here. And I believe there are up to five skeletons now. And this one here. They actually have a name for the guy because they found a cup nearby which had a Greek name scratched into it. So I believe that is on the uh, 
NBC article. So I won't go into that right now. I, I know we probably should be moving on, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully I have piqued our listeners' interest a little bit. Look up the Antikythera shipwreck. You're going to be there for a while. It's yeah. cool. Well, and here's another shipwreck. Spectacularly intact is what they said. 1897 shipwreck discovered in Lake Superior. We ran out of time last week to talk about it, but it's a very recent discovery. Uh, the aged antelope may have been one of the most valuable vessels on the Great Lakes, but is living up to its fleet-footed namesake in the October day 119 years ago. The schooner barge carrying a load of coal was clipping along at 11 to 12 miles per hour as it approached the Apostle Island in a tow with a steamer. Hiram W. Shelby on October 7th, 1897. As the two vessels neared Michigan Island, the weather was fair but wind brisk. The seas choppy wouldn't have troubled most ships, but the antelope had been launched 36 years earlier in an eternity for Great Lakes vessels in those days. Under the stress of the punishing waves, the old ship sprung a leak and pumps were put to work. Although the crew worked valiantly, the pumps were not able to cope with the intrusion of water, which rapidly and steadily increased the depth of the hold. When it was plain that the antelope was doomed, the crew had time to gather up their effects, and these together, the ship's papers and other articles of value that could be moved conveniently were taken aboard the Sibley. The 187-foot antelope slipped beneath the waves, not to be seen again until earlier this month, Thanks to years of work and some good fortune, a group of shipwreck hunters with, with local ties and a string of recent discoveries located their remarkably preserved vessel. It is the most spectacularly intact sail-rigged ship in Lake Superior. Two of the three masts are standing with full rigging, said Jerry Ellison of uh, Scanlon, along with Jerry Merriman, or Ken Merriman of uh, Twin Cities, and Craig Smith of Rice Lake, Wisconsin, Lord of Cameron, explore the wreck. Last Wednesday, they got a giant Woodstock anchor and bow chain is intact. They had first spotted the wreck on sonar less than a week earlier. The antelope was a ship the group had been seeking for years, making periodic trips to search vicinity where the vessel was last reported. In the end, it was good luck, backed by knowledge of those previous trips that led to the discovery. They traveled from Ontonagon, Michigan, to Bayfield, Wisconsin, aboard Merriman's boat Hellboy on September 2nd, and they left the sonar running even when they weren't actively searching at the time because they knew they'd be passing through the general area where the antelope sank. Sure enough, the ghostly distinctive form of the schooner showed up in the sonar as they neared Michigan Island. It was a lot like winning the lottery and having purchased 10,000 tickets, he said. The antelope was built in 1861, the same year Abraham Lincoln became president. Elias noted the steamer carrying passenger and freight between Chicago and Buffalo, New York. Corndale Great Lakes Maritime Historical Records, Bowling Green State University in Ohio. The Antelope caught fire and burned in Buffalo in 1867, was rebuilt and continued on service as a steamer. 25 or 30 years ago, she was one of the Cracker Jacks, a thing of beauty, an object of pride, the news reported in the day in 1897. The Antelope had its main boilers removed when it was converted to a schooner barge in the 1880s. Somewhat odd change over the time when schooners generally were being supplanted by steamers on the lake. In its later years, it had three mast cabins near the bow, in part to house a donkey boiler to run the windlass, and another set of chains near the steam, the ship's wheel, to the extent it needed, while in tow of another vessel was astern as well. So this is sounds like an unusual vessel. So it started off as a steamship and then was converted to a sailing barge? Is, am, I, am I understanding what they're getting to correctly? That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it all just depended upon what the current owners wanted out of the vessel, and, you know, they were yeah. quite handy. So. Well, from it, it it seems from some of the reading I had done, 
is it didn't take too many trips for a ship to be paid off. And if you were probably a leading ship owner, you may, you know, run it till it he wasn't making you as much. And then you went on and got the next, because this overlapped with, I mean, we've got ships that are, that are on the Great Lakes that were built before this sank. You know, because you're, you know, as they were pointing out in the article, the the late 1800s and the early 1900s, you're just getting into the heyday of the larger steam carriers. Yeah. Yeah. But you the can problem see was the, the wooden ships generally had a 20-year life. Um, and so once they got to a point where they were leaking and very hard to maintain, they may have just pulled the pulled the important machinery off you know, the big boilers, the steam engines, things like that. The stuff that's worth more than the ships. Yeah. Move those to a different ship and then just converted it into a barge that was, you know, towed by another steamship. And quite often those barges, they would add sail to them so they could assist in reducing the load that the steam barge had to pull. So they would use the sails and the steam barge, just so there wasn't so much to pick up a little more speed. Ah, so just kind of the the supplement. So if you, yeah, because the engines are probably underpowered by our standards, but you know any little bit of assistance you can get from the wind, the better off you. Are. Right. Yeah, and you can you can see in this picture that they show for it's taken in the 1880s. Uh, the masts are carrying sail. I mean that the sails are not deployed, but you know the, the two of the masts you can clearly see have have, have sail ready, ready to go on them. So they were definitely sailing it as they could. Well, there's a video in the second article. If you look, we got two two articles on this. And that is showing, I'm, I'm looking at now, and this is in remarkably shape. Uh, I, I'm guessing by this video, it's not, did they say how deep it is? They said resting more than 300 feet below. 300, yeah. Uh, unless that water is crystal clear, it that looks shallower than 300 feet. Well, I know we've had this discussion before, though. It'll it'll kind of surprise you sometimes just how deep you have ambient light. Well, and also and they I, may they may be doing a lot of post processing because I I yeah. can take a photo that's shot in almost near black and make it look like it was daylight. Yeah, and and I'm sure this isn't done with the GoPro either. I mean, this is going to have some high quality camera. I mean, not that not that a GoPro isn't a decent unit here, but yeah. uh, this is something here which has some substantial low light sensitivity. If, if I can get past the ads. Yeah, once you get past the ads, this, this is this is remarkable. I mean, when you see, I mean, there's no zebra mussels on it. When you can see a square beam that is still square, that is. Be- uh, hopefully, they put out some more video. The video is about a minute and a half. Uh, certainly worth taking a look at. Yeah, a fair amount of sediment on the wreck. Got the ship's wheel. Yeah, it's. Yep, see the wheel now. Yeah. When was this taken? Do you know what time of year this video was taken? This is just a few weeks ago. Okay. This is a uh, end of not, s- beginning not of September. Not even peak visibility time. Yeah, not even far from peak visibility time. When we were up, you know, we didn't go anywhere near this deep, but what did we have for bids on the Vienna, Jim? It, was, it wasn't like this. No. <laughs> well, it, it might have been like this before we got there. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay. All right. That's just too bad you guys didn't have a little bit better visibility on that. We're, I think we're going to skip the the rest of the articles. We had some new uh, cameras come out, Nikon uh, gave us a 360-degree uh, water-resistant camera. Uh, GoPro launched the Hero 5 and the Karma drone of an update on the Phantom 1 project and autonomous boats in Amsterdam and also boat setter. So those are articles that if we get time next week, we'll get into. For this week, I think we've got enough diving in that we want to talk about getting wet. So let, let's go ahead and start with Jim since Jim hasn't been on a while. 
what are some of the highlights of your last couple of weeks of diving? Oh, the Mackinac trip was fantastic. I mean, that was uh, well worth being the premier dive trip for me for this for the year. Some people head to the Keys or the Caribbean. Um, me, I'll just take good old going up to Mackinac for ten days and relaxing. And uh, we hit. I think we counted ten shipwrecks uh, in this eight or nine days we were up there. And took two days off of where I didn't dive, but still uh, was on the water, and it was just a fantastic trip. I've been working on video and doing some editing and putting a collage together of the deck of the Eber Ward from the video I shot, so it was very relaxing. Excellent. Uh, so so of the shipwrecks that you dove up there, what was the one that, that was the best dive? Either it was a new wreck you hadn't dove before or just a beautiful dive? Uh, the Eber Ward. You know, I've always said my favorite shipwreck is the next one I dive. Mm-hmm. Paraphrasing, uh, yeah, Dave Trotter, he always says his favorite shipwreck is the next one he finds. But uh, I always loved the Barney, which was a two-masted schooner in 165 feet of water, Lake Huron off Rogers City, because it was so intact, mass standing, so beautiful. Uh, still had a deck house on it. But when I got inside the Eberward and was swimming through um, the decks, you know, three decks you can do penetration in. Uh, it's, it's like swimming inside a ballroom. This ship is, it appeared so large. You know, you just stand there and look and you see row after row after row of beams and posts and it was just outstanding. So I'm going to say the Eber Ward was my favorite. Yeah, I just and pasted the, uh, into the chat room uh, a link, to, uh, a charter that's running out there, and they have a beautiful photo. Uh, and it must, and this is exceptional stability, hundred foot stability. Yeah, well, Kevin got a great shot, uh, a couple great still shots of me. Oh, is that the one where you're going into the wreck? Yes, where uh-huh. I'm swimming into this huge hole in the bow of the wreck, and that's the Eber Ward, and that's the. I'm going to say the second deck down. You've got the main deck, you know, which is above the open deck, if you would. There's a deck below that, the deck that I entered, and then you've got a bilge space even below that. And it was just a fantastic dive. So the Eber Ward is is definitely um, one that I would love to get back to. It, it's my number one, number two right now. And, you know, I want to point out that... Um there's a little bit of misinformation out there on the Eber Ward. Uh, it's actually not quite as deep as the sites say. Um, we did find that, uh, you know, overall, Michigan Preserves has really good numbers. But we did find that uh, numbers for, I believe it's the Stern, is way, 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 way off. I mean, like like by 100 miles off. Oh, <laughs> depends which site you go to, and that's been fixed. But, pardon? If you go to the actual preserves website it's correct if you go to the um michigan underwater preserves the all 13 websites it's it's wrong there and that's that has been submitted for correction since we were up there okay good Good. glad to hear yeah that's the one that i think jan did or she helps administer yeah it's it's also not quite as deep as they say because uh we were kind of surprised we were kind of wanting to stay off the bottom because according to the the site 
it was 150 feet deep there. But at one point, I was doing some video on the bow, and I was dropping down in front of the bow, videoing the bow above me and in front of me. And I'm watching my I'm watching my my gauge, so I don't go you know way out of sport depth anyway. And oh, hmm, my fins are hitting bottom. Oh wow, 120 feet. So it's more like about 125 to the sand, at least at least by the bow. Um, so it, I know that the, the site was telling us 150 feet to the sand. No, it's not quite that deep. So this is something that's fully within sport depth. I mean, there, there might be some areas you get inside it because often the the uh, you know the hull will be beneath the bottom sometimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, but if you're, if you're going inside it, then you're not doing a sport dive. But as far as seeing the boat from the outside. Um, I didn't see anything that was out of sport depth. I mean, there might be some small areas, but if there is, it's not much out of sport depth. I'll tell you that because my my fins touched the bottom and my gauge said 120 feet, so might have been 126 feet to the bottom there. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking at one website and it's a Straits Preserve website and it says it's 110 feet to 140 feet. So I don't know if they're saying that the depth at the bottom varies from 110 to 140, or if they're saying the top of the wreck is 110 and the bottom is. Yeah, top of the wreck's probably 110. I think when I did my flyover, I tried to stay about 90 feet because uh, mm-hmm. I did a flyover down one side of it and back the other, trying to shoot video straight down so that I could put it together for a, a collage. And I'd say I was 20 feet off trying to get good video. So, yeah, I'd say it's probably 110 to the main deck, and it might be 140 you know, at its deepest point. And maybe maybe like in, inside the hold or something there, but I don't think it's 140 on the sand there because yeah. like you say on the bow my gauge said 120 and my fins were just just top just half in the bottom it was so you know 126 you know was not you know it's not not the 150 I saw on the on the site there initially so yeah that was yeah, a be- it, 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 beautiful wonderful beautiful dive. wreck yeah yeah I mean it's, and then there's much, another go ahead Kevin very much intact hull I mean. Uh, we had great visibility both on both dives there. Um, if any of our listeners, when you're up the straits, if you can get to the Eber Ward, uh, you'll enjoy it. Um, it's a really very cool wreck. Go ahead, Jim. Another one that I really enjoyed was the Perseverance. Now, that was a wreck in 60 feet that had been clamshelled. But what I really liked about the Perseverance was all the pieces were there. And so it was scattered out a bit like a... Um, jigsaw puzzle uh but it was amazing you could identify the mast you could identify the boom you could identify the gaff uh there were pieces of the stern there that were were definitely visible um the rudder uh the stern post um it had hearts uh some people call them live eyes uh, if you know what a dead eye is with the three holes in it that looks like a face uh, there's also one large hole that has three grooves cut in the top of it that is often called a live eye uh, because it's used to make adjustments much more frequently than you would on a dead eye. Uh, so that was there. Those were very identifiable. Uh, there were lots of lots of pieces of the ship that you could clearly see, and it made for a good, uh, hopefully it'll make a good presentation sometime, when uh get all those photos put together and say, okay, what's this piece? And then you draw it or point to it and, you know, highlight it, and people can see exactly what it was that uh, that I'm talking about, you know, when you're trying to identify it and 
So I, I really enjoyed that one. I hadn't been on that wreck before either. Well, I'm looking at this. I, I found I did a quick search on it, and one's on a website, uh, Shipwreck Stories and Perseverance. If this is the same shipwreck, it's... Uh, oh, no, this is a different one, because I don't think you went down to Lake Erie. Nope. Nope. So it's a wreck. I don't think it was... Well, obviously, they clamshelled it so they knew where it was, but I don't think it had had been on the charts or you know, dove a whole lot until the last yeah, this few was years. A, this was a pretty new one. The dive shop told us it was a very new find, so it may not it may not be on the charts yet. There may not be a lot of information out there on it yet. But that that was a great one. Then we've been hitting the river. I had a fantastic uh, day in the river today. Um, just pretty much in a small area, kept finding bottle after bottle after bottle that I put in the bag and brought back with me instead of just stacking them in a, a rack for somebody else to look at or putting them in a pile to see if somebody else wants it. Um, just picked up, well, let's see, there were three, two very, very small uh, bottles, like almost medicine pill bottles, tiny aspirin size bottles. Happened to run across those, found a third one, but the bottom was broken out of it. Uh, I had three um, cork top whiskeys where the top, the very top of the bottle, was applied after the bottle was was made. And this one of them, I could tell, was a hand-blown bottle because it was very thick in one spot, thin in another, and the cork top was tilted. It didn't get applied straight. Uh, two other whiskey bottles... Two Christmas Cokes, and if you don't know what a Christmas Coke is, it's a uh, Coca-Cola bottle that has the patent date of de- December 25th uh, on it. And those were only produced about a, over about a four-year period. So now they were reproduced at some time, but if you look at the bottoms, they were produced at a point when the bottlers were all stamping the bottles at the bottom with their bottling plant, which plant it came out of. So I picked up two of those, um, got a really nice embossed celery tonic bottle. I've never seen one like that before. It was a square bottle uh, with a cork top. And then I've got a flask bottle that has a flare top, a very flat, uh, almost like an Amish hat. Amish brim tat upside down top on it. So did you said you said a, a celery tonic. Celery tonic. You know that that doesn't sound very appealing. I think I can tell you why it was out in the river. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean that, that that was kind of wasn't that a theory that uh, medicine was supposed to not be tasty? You know, the the worse it tastes, the better it worked. That might that may be. I know that there was a lot of medicinal ideas with celery because you know Kalamazoo being the the celery city, they did a lot of promotion that you know there's all kinds of health and good things he found in celery, which may or may not have been true. I don't know. They, they even they even made, they even made a cereal out of celery in Cal in um, over in Richland for a while. So try to try to palate that one. No thanks, but well, it's better than snake oil. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'll take the celery over snake oil. I'll give you that mm-hmm. one. So. That was just, uh, you know, I posted it on my Facebook page and on the Mud Club Facebook page, so it wasn't the greatest of photos, but uh, it uh, it was a good night, good night in the river. I think I had about two and a half hours of bottom time and needed to get a bigger tank. Yeah. And that was in a three-mil wetsuit. Oh, yeah. So you were probably starting to get a little chilly there, Tor. Uh A little bit, a good. little bit. 
I had a hood on, but no gloves. Now, now when Kevin, I started getting cool, go, go, when I started getting cool, I just kind of swim against the current for a little while. <laughs> yeah, that'll warm me up a little bit. Now, Kevin, we had a plan to go out and do some diving on Sunday, and I woke up and I was just completely congested up. But I understand that you got on to the Ann Arbor Five and the barge and crane. How'd that go? Um, you know, we had uh, Rob Rob since kind of went out there, and um, you know, we had a great couple of dives. Um, you know, the Ann Arbor. Um, you know, we had I don't know. This wasn't incredible, but you know, better than fifty foot. Um, I know that from one side of the deck, you can see the other side of the boat quite quite well. Um, quite a bit of burbot. Um, you know. The deeper you got, the better the viz got. Um, I know I got a little, little below the, below the props. And I think I, actually, I didn't quite get the bottom, but close. Um, that was a pretty cool dive. I know, I know Rob had a great time with it as well. Um, we went over to the uh, Boltimus Barge and um, took some more pictures. Uh, Rob and I did a penetration on it, went inside the uh, machinery room, kind of checked things out a little bit better. We kind of wanted to get inside that to uh, get a better look at what's inside the machinery room. Um, going about the power plant and things and all that, and um, well, it's it's got a muffler on it, so there being a muffler on it, pretty clear it's not steam. It's going to be you know diesel or gas, and um, you know got a lot of good pictures of inside it there. Did a nice swim through on that. Um, you know, busy again with about, about 50 feet. You know, um, I know I was experimenting with a different computer, and I don't know my second computer. Well, you know they say that a a man who knows a man who wears one watch knows what time it is. A man who wears two is never sure. <laughs> uh, well, a man who wears two computers hasn't got a clue. <laughs> I can tell you that. I mean, I, my second computer, I, I just bought a, a Shearwater Petrol, and I just pulled it out of the box and was using it. I hadn't played with the settings or anything, just trying to get used to it. But I'm, I'm, I'm using my standby, and I would had the standby in the first dive, and... Uh, I just took the petrol for a ride on the second dive just to kind of get a little used to the settings. But it must have had something, some really, really, you know, uh, conservative settings because all of a sudden it's got me in a two-step deco. And <laughs> I'm just, I, where did this all come from? And my other computer, which has just been, you know, gone the first dive, it knows where I'm at and everything, you know, that, that had just put me into a, into a, a two-minute 10-foot ceiling. So, you know, I was doing good on that one but i ended up cutting the dive kind of short just because i didn't want to find that i misunderstood something on my computer and put myself in trouble which i wasn't in trouble but um you know rob continued you know you know i told him i was going up and he was good with that and he, he kind of looked up a little more followed me up shortly after um you know great couple of dives lots of good pictures on both of them um did a dive in wolf lake the other night uh you know, a friend of mine wanted some, some hydrotherapy so uh, we went out Wolf Lake over uh, between Kalamazoo and Matawan. Um, visibility was six inches. <laughs> it was nothing stellar. So uh, I think there might be a lot of metal in the bottom of that lake. So uh, kind of hot. I'm going to go out and run the, run the sonar out there. We um, decided since the visibility was so bad, we would just kind of do some training. Was, um, just just refresh, some, refresh some skills. Um only like about 30 feet to the bottom so we played around with uh mask flooding mask removal mask you know, you know uh, replacement um did some reg swaps a little bit of underwater navigation um played with that a little bit uh we were having a hard time with the compass though because uh 
either the compass was going in circles or we were or both. <laughs> so it got a little bit awkward there. So I think that there might be there might be a lot of metal in the bottom of Wolf Lake. We're going to take, take, take go ahead and find out about that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, but the visibility was was pretty bad there. So and of course I was with, with Jim. We did you know on with the uh, straight trip there. We you know yeah he's right. We had great dives up there. Um, I, I I dove every day I was there. Um, we had to modify our plants a few times due to the weather, but uh, we were able to dive every day that we planned on up there. You know, I know the gym took a day off, and um, I planned to take a day off, but okay. ended up diving that day anyway. And you know, I think it was like yeah, like ten. I had like ten wrecks over, well, ten dives over seven days. Um, it was marvelous. <laughs> I mean, it was a a great trip. So. Excellent. Well, I finally was able to break my most recent shorter dive uh, dry straights. I I went and took some Alka-Seltzer, hoping just to feel better, edited the podcast, then I thought, you know what? I think I got time to get a dive in. I headed down to Marmot, and uh, they I just missed them by just a few minutes. So I sat around for about an hour and a half waiting for them to come up. But it gave me time to, to go through my gear, do some organization. Uh, I was actually uh, able to fix my inflator hose. I had a... Uh, I had an inflator hose that had gone bad, so I had swapped it out with one I had in my kit, and that one was worse. And I'm like, well, what the heck's going on with these inflator hoses? And I got to looking inside, and, and on your on my BC inflator, it's using a Schrader valve. And what had happened is that Schrader valve had backed out. So by turning the, the Schrader valve back in, it took care of it. So a perfect place to test that out is in the river, knowing you're not going to be more than 10 or 15 feet deep. So I was able to get a, a dive in on the river and... I got in, God, I didn't know how long I was, I didn't have my computer down with me, but it had to have been at least, uh, Good. and Good it was beautiful. That was, that's therapy. You know, if you want to know why we dive, that's it right there. I don't, I don't care if anybody listens to the podcast or does anything else. I, I just love to, to get out in the water and, and enjoy seeing th- things. Uh, the fish were hanging around me. They were, they were hoping I would scoop something up that, and I found a few good bottles, a couple keepers, but, uh, nothing like what everybody else has been finding, but it was a, it was a great dive all the less. Yeah, it, it's cool how, how the fish down there they like to follow us around. They they know they might get a meal, so they they kind of stalk you out there. Uh, and and everything is bigger underwater. I, that's why I love collecting golf balls. I had I found three of them uh, to make sure I had an official dive in. But those golf balls look almost like baseballs when I find them underwater. So it just kind of reminds you that you have to recalibrate the size of things. Cause it's so hard to to figure out distances and visibility and clarity. But I'm, I was also thinking the same. Same thing about uh, the ecology dive. We're going to have no problem filling up uh, some bags. Not at all. I I, I stack some piles up myself just prepping. Because I I like to be selective in the first half of the dives and then fill the bag up. And then when I start heading in, I I load in uh, a few donor pieces. If you look at the photos from this last week's dives, uh, there's a couple I brought in. One was a bottle bottom. Uh, Nothing that anybody would collect. But just the emboss on it, I thought was it had a like a phrase or a saying on the bottom of the bottle. Not quite in, involved in deep. Just a, just a great dive. I, I I think river visibility on Sunday was yeah I, I would say six eight feet easy, and uh, you could definitely tell when the sun came out. It felt like you could see forever, and then when it got uh, behind a cloud, uh, it certainly looked a little bit uh, less visible. So what's the the dives for this weekend, uh, Jim? You thinking you might be able to make it out Sunday? Uh, yeah, I really would like to get out on Sunday and, um, would want to, I, I want to head to the Havana. I've only been to the Havana twice this year and both times for really bad visibility. 
and we've never, I don't think anyone has hit max rec this year. I'm not aware of anybody getting on. Uh, yeah, so if, uh, if you got room, I'm up for Sunday. I think I can, I can twist somebody's arm to let me go on Sunday. I feel like I'm owed a few days of diving. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll plan on Sunday morning getting out and hitting the, the Havana. Yeah, plus, plus I broke my lawnmower, so that's actually uh, been a boon to diving. Uh, I don't have excuses. Good. I'll have to remember to do that for next year. Okay. Well, you guys just be, be good to my boat, all right? So. <laughs> we will. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you offering it. Yeah, we've well, got the Havana, you know, and then we've got uh, the the wreck right next to the Havana. Yeah. All right. Yeah, he, he's not he's not laughing. I'm I'm chuckling over here. So <laughs> I don't know. There may there may be something there. Who knows? I mean, it's kind of in what what you see down there. So okay. that's that's probably a probably a topic for another podcast. So. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. We have quite a few people who showed up in the uh, chat room. Uh, Flyboy Ned, Scuba Tech, a couple of the others, which are probably us, is in there. Uh, we record on Thursday nights, somewhere between 9 and 11, depending on what's going on. As it's getting darker earlier, people are showing up a little bit earlier, earlier starting times. Uh, if you want to follow the program, you can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, where Jim Billings puts up show notes, uh, usually about... Uh, Saturday or Sunday, depending on when I get the show edited. Um, I got to show up this this week on Sunday. Uh, you can listen to us, WRVO Radio. I'd like to thank them again for putting us on the air. You can listen to us on iTunes. Uh, we're on Facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. We're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. Do you have anything you want to plug, Jim? Oh, plug Scuba Obsessed. <laughs> if the show's work, worth a buck, send it. Yep. And you can... And we also, we'll send you some bottles. Yep. Yeah, we do have some bottles. I got a bunch of photos I'm in the process of taking, so we'll get out there. So go ahead and donate now. You don't have to select your bottle right away. You can select it later on. You can accumulate up to the value of the bottle, and we'll go ahead and send one out to you. Uh, to get to that link, you go to scubaobsessed.com. Look for the Patreon links, which are at the end of each of the articles in the right side column of the menu. Click on over and give us a donation. Anything uh, from a dollar, three dollars gets you the early show notes, and beyond that is certainly appreciated. I'd like to thank Vanessa Humyak and Scott Halbert of donating to us as a Patreon supporter at the Dive Nitrox level. Your donation is certainly appreciated. We're getting to the point where we're going to be able to start upgrading some sound equipment. Just probably a couple months off from uh, hitting that goal. Yeah, we've got the bottles and we'll have even more after October the 1st that we'll certainly put out there and donate. And these are not just junk bottles. They're yeah. embossed bottles or unique bottles uh yeah. yeah and they all have a story to tell they certainly do and maybe we'll even convince people to sign them if you want one or do a consignment say if you're into pepsi or dr pepper uh drop us a line and we'll go looking for them because there might be something oh, yeah. that we're just uh, just about every flavor of something that's it's been there in a the river you know we may just be tossing it out thinking somebody doesn't want it i mean i'm i'm looking at my desk now and i've got Low neck, which I have no idea what flavor that is. We have knee high, which I believe was grape. Grape and, or orange. And then we've got the Pepsis and the Cokes. I found a nice Pepsi this weekend. It was a, it was almost like I would call a one-quart bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a nice texture on it, and I, and I saved that one. I thought yeah. that would be. I stacked up some Pepsis, some Mountain Dews, uh, some Diamond Root Beers. Um, you know, they're all... Many of those have very unique, well, everybody knows a Coke. Mm -hmm. Look at a Coke bottle, and Pepsi bottles have the swirls. Mountain Dews uh, are the green. Um, Dr. Peppers, 
often have the uh, we've seen some different changes with Dr. Peppers, so they're there. Plus mason jars. If you oh, wow. we, since we found that um, article or that dating detail where they changed the design on mason jars uh, and can now date them, uh, I've been paying a lot more attention to ball ball canning jars technically and have been pulling those up just so I can try to get one or two from each time period to show them as examples of the, you know, hands-on examples of the different, uh, the changes they made in their logo. Oh, cool. Yeah, I I believe Mac just found a couple unique in the last couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and if you find any of them which which are, uh, you know, which are blue, those are definitely keepers. Yeah, anything to plug, Kevin? Yeah, well, my usual plugs, uh, you know, be sure to support your local libraries, use them as often as you can, and be sure you say thanks, because, you know, they're good people up there, and they, you know, they, they they do good work. You know, I've been very pleased with using the libraries, uh, support your local dive shops. Um, it's always nice to get a bargain online, but those online guys aren't going to fill your tanks for you, so make sure you go to your dive shops. That's what I got. Okay. Does that take us to that time of the show? It certainly does. And uh, Rod from uh, the Southern Hemisphere has come across quite a few new articles, or the article, jokes. He's got us taken care of for probably the next month and a half. All right. And there's not a bad one or a good one in the mix. I don't know. Mm. I'll be the judge of that. Yes. Okay. So here we go. Two old drunks are stumbling along the road after a night of drinking. They decide that neither of them are capable of finding the way home. As they pass a graveyard, they decide to have a rest there. All of a sudden, one of them explains, Dave, come here. I can see a stone here that says this man lived to be 118. Is it anyone we know? No, he's not from around here. It said his name is Miles from New York. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I probably guess I should have said Miles from Chicago. So thanks, Rod. And until next week, go out there and get wet. Stay safe. And remember, no fish were harmed in the making of tonight's show, but we did talk about it. Recording has been completed. There's one one video we didn't get to, which was the uh, the sharks pooping on the diver. I've had a bird poop on me, but I don't think I've ever had a shark poop on me. <laughs> the question is, how many divers have pooped on sharks? Well, you know, that's actually probably happened. Jettisoning some bilge tanks. Or a shark swims by you, and all of a sudden, you've got an extra... Oh, yeah. I, I, get, mm-hmm. I get where you're going now. Yeah, certainly. That would be an involuntary muscle reaction. <laughs> Yeah, that, you know that that's the the sphincter sphincter factor in reverse. Doesn't doesn't matter if you got a wetsuit or a dry suit. That's not going to be a pleasant one. No, your dry suit may become disposable after. <laughs> no, dry suit is never disposable. Never, <laughs> never, never, never. So. You may have a hard time getting people to help you unzip though. <laughs> we might no. We probably keep you zipped up. We're not going to let yeah. you out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> We'll you can just sit there. All right, Scuba Tech, we're looking to see you next week. <laughs>